Welcome to the Epic Angels podcast. Every episode, we put the spotlight on one of our portfolio startups. My name is Mikey. And my name is Hester. After the conversation with the founder, Mikey and I will have a conversation together with one of our Epic Angels to reflect on this investment. Today, we're speaking with Habito by SJ Mobile Labs, a fintech from Japan. It doesn't happen often we have the opportunity to invest in Japan. Welcome, Sam. Glad that you're joining us today. Hi, Mike. I'm so glad to be here and thanks for having me. Well, Sam, you're the CEO and co-founder of Habitome. You've been at the intersection of tech and finance for the past 20 years. You lived in many different countries all over the world. And in my opinion, you are a great example of a woman who gets shit done, which you proved again with Habito. You managed to get this company from zero to one in just 12 months, all while initially you couldn't even get into Japan because of the COVID restrictions. I want to hear more, Sam. Could you tell us who are you and how did you even get to this whole idea of Habito? Uh, Well, thanks for this polished introduction. This is great. You probably already saved about five minutes of my much lengthier introduction. But my background really has been at the intersection of tech and finance because I've always seen finance and in particular money, this almost like invisible force in society and almost like a, a nervous system that runs through everything that people do, every sector in the economy. And it kind of impacts people's everyday lives. And so I look at financial freedom as a basic human right, particularly in countries where people have already sort of passed the ability of, you know, getting a job, getting a decent education. And yet, despite what most people may think, there are many, many people, in fact, millions of people around the world where notwithstanding the fact that they have a job and that they had a good education, they're still really worried about their finances. And the reason why that's the case is because they have no money strategy. They have no idea how to actually make their money work harder. They think that making financial decisions is actually a uh, black magic. It belongs to somebody else. It's a weird trick that some people have and others don't. And this is ever more so true in a country like Japan, where people think about money and investments almost a polar opposite of magic or tragic. And so that kind of cultural DNA, if you like, really sort of piqued my interest as I started to look at money habits across various sort of Southeast Asian markets. So the the story really begins many, many years ago. In fact, I probably won't say how long ago, but uh, it's been a wonderful journey that led me to connect and to appreciate and to be inspired by phenomenal entrepreneurs and engineers and marketeers and designers uh, that use their ingenuity and their passion to help people make better financial decisions. About four years ago, I moved to Singapore after having spent about 10 years as an investor backing incredible founders and ran a business called Sing Life, which was founded by a really visionary entrepreneur. Um, And the business really taught me an important lesson, which is that most individuals really think about their uh, wealth 
essentially as as savings. You know, what we normally think about uh, financial constructs and people that are deep into the industry are actually not really that meaningful uh, to the average person. And so I sort of set myself on the mission to kind of simplify finance, make money matters more understandable and make people get the best out of their the money. That's a story behind SingLife. SingLife exited in 2021 through a private equity deal, which was reasonably sized for a market like Singapore, just over 3.2 billion Sing dollars. And on the back of that experience, I exited SingLife and together with my co-founder, Liam McCants, previously CMO and Chief Strategy Officer at SingLife, we founded Habito. And if we go deeper into Habito, because it's it's a so-called neobank uh, that provides different product offerings across three verticals. Uh, it's banking, insurance, and investments. And you focus very specific on young Japanese by helping them to build a better financial future. And I think what you just said as well, helping them really to understand how the investment works and that you just you should not just put it at a bank account in cash and just let it go away. What made you decide on this value proposition and this specific customer segments? First of all, we looked at many markets, you know, the experience, the learnings and the insight that we got in Singapore and prior to that um, led us to assess markets with, I think, fairly surgical eyes and quite a critical set of lenses. And we landed on Japan, which is actually not a usual destination for foreign entrepreneurs, let alone for women foreign entrepreneurs. Um, but I I truly believe Japan is the next fintech frontier. It's a huge market opportunity, notwithstanding the fact that it's really hard to crack. We can deep dive into why it's so hard to crack. It has, though, an evolving and I would say normalizing regulatory landscape. The JFSA has been following on the tracks of the uh, MAS and the FCA. Uh, has evolved the regulatory framework, particularly with respect to the distribution of financial services and the availability of digital signatures. So those are real important structural changes that are enabling startups like us and certainly startups in the future that will follow in our steps. And also, if you look at the competitive environment, uh, there is still reasonably limited innovation in this space. Just as a data point, uh, there's probably less than 30 startups in the fintech space in the whole of Japan, 120 million people that are more in, in Singapore alone, which is a 20th of the market. Um, the major insight as we looked at the Japanese market is really sort of the observation that what stops people from taking action is actually a behavioral challenge. Uh, Japan is flushed with many, many products, actually fairly sophisticated products from savings to investments to life insurance. And people are really sort of squashed to, between value propositions that are either incredibly analog, so they go into advisors, into securities firms, and basically they get pushed to buy the highest yield product with the highest commission. And, or they're kind of sort of stuck into a world of few sort of digital innovators that are basically digitally only, and God forbid you actually need to speak to a person. And particularly in the Japanese space, service is very important, human touch is very important. 
And people need that emotional reassurance that they are on the right track. Enters Abito, which is in a neobank focused on new money habits. And the entire sort of ethos of this business is recognizing that technology is important. It simplifies customer experience. It drives efficiencies. But actually, human need touch point of another human interaction, particularly when it comes to making decisions on products that have multiple configuration or that require risk. So the the unique sp- space that we are occupying in the Japanese market is really this tech plus human combination, what we call fintech for humans, which we plan to dominate. From a model perspective, back to your question, Mikey, you're right, we are a neobank. Uh, there are different models out there in terms of how neobank monetize their customer relationships. And from my experience, not just a single life, but having invested in my previous life in many neobanks, it is very obvious that purely relying on transactional revenue, in other words, all the interchange revenue that comes from cards transactions, is just not sufficient to to come to good unit economics. And so that's why we are embedding from day one insurance and investments. In technical terms, our business model is a bank assurance model. It's a tried and tested model in the analog world that has existed for many, many decades. It exists basically when a bank and insurance company decide to join forces so that the insurance manufactures a product and the bank distributes those products through their retail branch network. Now, in the 21st century, branch networks, we all know, are shrinking in some markets. They're actually shrunk to almost none. And so Bank Assurance 2.0 simply means acquiring customers on banking products through a digital front end, in other words, a mobile application, and monetizing that relationship through insurance and investment products through the use and the fulfillment of human interactions. Yeah, and I think that that is really also that glue that you're providing. It's not one product offering, it's the multiple product offerings that can give this broader perspective on their finance and their finance well-being combined with that human interface, as you said, and financial advice by real people instead of only by computers, uh, which will really help in increasing the customer loyalty. Because Sam, you are with Habito, we are in a very early stage because you haven't publicly launched yet. Uh, Launch is scheduled for the beginning of next year. You did launch a private beta, Uh, What were your key insights from that beta group? The private beta was launched at the end of the summer. We enrolled 120 people and we specifically tried to understand the space at the intersection of uh, digital and human interaction. And uh, there were a couple of things that we were expecting to see and a couple of surprises. So let me start with the things that we expected to see. So we expected people to respond positively to capital protected products. In other words, saving propositions. And we now have fairly confident data that suggests that between 50 to 75% of the customer base will move their savings for 30 basis points, which is really what we're offering on the saving accounts. It will come to market as the highest saving product in Japan. 
That was not surprising, uh, but it was a really great confirmation that the core value proposition of attracting customers through savings, not investment, is the right wedge. What surprised us was the extent to which individuals, and in particular women, we had over 65% respondents were women, um, the need and the value of that human interaction two data points I think are worth mentioning here. One is that over 75% of the respondents actually went through an advisor session, which lasted about 30 minutes uh, and was very much focused on understanding people's needs and worries. And for the first time, people said, I finally found myself in a situation where I could freely talk about my money worries without feeling that I was pushed to buy a product in that very same session. And so that's, I think, a really important um, discovery point around what is the role of the advisor and how do we sequence relationship building, brand building, trust building, and how do we back end that with subsequent cross-selling? The two things clearly need to happen in stage. Uh, the second point of surprise was that over 80% of the respondents were actually willing to pay for good advice. Uh, this was surprising because in many other markets that I worked with, uh, worked in, and I've worked in many, many different cultural settings, advice is a very difficult product and proposition to price. Most people don't want to pay for advice. Here, we discovered that the vast majority of respondents were willing to pay a minimum of 200 yen per month to be able to interact with advisors. And so that led us to the discovery of potentially a new revenue line a new revenue stream that we had not originally envisaged, which is really about providing a subscription service for the advisors, which takes me to the third point. As I think about the unit economics of this business, they're really sort of predicated on four revenue components. Uh, first and foremost, um, commissions on insurance, which will probably represent in and around 70% of our total revenue mix at scale, about 20% will come from fees on AUMs, in other words, when we actually sell investment products. And the balance will be most likely a mix between services and interchange. And this revenue mix, for those that are familiar with neobanks, is actually very different from a traditional neobank revenue models, which is predicated on interchange and net income, essentially positioning credit products, loans in particular. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And it's always so valuable to see that beta group indeed before you do your big launch. Uh, so it looks like you're ready for that. And, and Sam, you also touched upon Japan already, how, what a massive market it is, what a massive opportunity it is. But at the same time, also, it's a complicated market to enter as a foreigner and as a women entrepreneur, even harder, as you already mentioned. But you managed in this one year since you're working on this to obtain a real important license to operate in Japan, the financial services intermediary license. This to me shows that you really have a robust plan, but not just a robust plan together with a trusted team. Could you tell us a little bit more about the team and how you managed to get the license so fast already? Yeah, I'm glad you actually mentioned this because this is one personal learning as I build this business. In previous lives, you actually think normally about 
the product and the customers and try to get to MVP as fast as possible. But in Japan, it became very obvious very quickly that we needed to resequence how we build a team, how we build a business to reflect the dynamics and, if you like, the DNA of the market. And so we almost reversed that and we focused first on building the team, then to get the license and build the relationships with the regulators and the partner. And thirdly, on the product, which is why, you know, the last year or so have really been sequenced that way. And we're only now in a position where we are knee deep into product development, screens development, which frankly, something we have done before. And it's probably an area where the team can very quickly ride that wave through to a public launch. The, If I look back, probably the best decision that happened was to hire first the representative director, a gentleman called Kumasan, who joined our team having run as a chief executive, BNP Paribas, Cardiff, the insurance division of BNP Paribas in Japan for over a decade, and having spent prior to that about 20 years in in insurance. So I would say an insurance veteran that really sort of supported the team and helped us very quickly get that credibility with the regulator and the partners. The first license was granted in September 2022, after just over six months of sort of, I would say, intense work with the regulator. The regulator was very, very predisposed and very benign, I would say, towards foreign entrants, and in particular foreign entrants that were interested in acquiring this new intermediary license, which just as a reminder, only came into effect at market level in November last year. So technically it's a you know it's a year old license. And what this license does for the first time, it allows distributors of financial products like us to stitch together simple value propositions across banking, insurance, and securities under singular regulatory regime. And, you know, for those not in financial services may not sound like a lot, but it's actually, it's a huge step forward because it significantly reduces the compliance overheads in building the business. Uh, The second biggest uh, implication is that this license is granted to us irrespective independently from the manufacturing partners, which means that we actually have the legal and regulatory framework to truly provide independent financial advice. This is perfect timing for you to enter the market now. All part of the plan. That is super good. And you're currently raising your pre-series A rounds. You're raising 5 million. This is your second round. You previously raised another 3.4 million and you were oversubscribed in no time. Could you tell us more about who the current investors are, what type of investors, and why they are so excited to invest in Hobbitome? So we were, I would say, very well positioned last year to raise our seed round in a year 2021, which would probably go on record as the most benign year from an investment perspective for a long time. The investors were a combination of Japanese uh, funds, global funds, and exited entrepreneurs. 
The cup table was very clean and very simple. The round was led by Saison Capital, which is the venture arm of Saison Group, the largest unsecure lender in Japan. This gave us the, the credibility in Japan and beyond that the model that we're trying to build has relevance in a market like Japan. The round was also joined by Anthemis Group, which is one of the leading early stage investors in fintech, notably in Europe and North America. We are actually their very first investment in Japan and by APIS Partners, which is a private equity firm based in London, were also the first investments that they make into Japan. The cap table was also joined by two notable entrepreneurs, uh, Walter, uh, who I referenced earlier, the founder of Sing Life, and was, I think, a good endorsement of the team that has worked together and the idea that we have evolved from Sing Life into Habito and into a new market, as well as Russell Kummer, the founder of Payday, probably the most notorious fintech uh, startup in Japan that exited in the end of 2021 for with a very large transactions of what they were acquired by PayPal. And in particular, Russell, I think, was very helpful to me in the very early days to give me um, important steers of how to build a business from scratch, being a foreign entrepreneur, otherwise called Gaijin, and in particular, sort of a woman in, in, in Japan. We also added a couple of important individuals at the advisory board. Again, this is in the spirit of combining local skills, capabilities, and insider track in Japan with global fintech expertise. We appointed Kashiwagi-san as our advisor very early in the day in our journey. He was the former CFO of Namura Holdings and the chief executive of Schroeder in Japan. So incredibly well-connected in the sort of capital markets and investment space and very well-known individual with the regulators. This certainly helped us a lot in you know, establishing us as a credible player from, from day one. The new round is underway. We're planning to do a second close. We already completed successfully a first close. And I, I can anticipate that this round will be a little bit of a rinse and repeat in terms of the strategy for financing that we have followed. We started last year, which was very much about a blend of Japanese investors and global funds. And where, what are the milestones where this funding will take you? The plan is for this round of financing to take us comfortably through to 2024 and I would say end of quarter one, 2024. And given that we're launching in March 2023, I expect us to be back in the uh, capital markets, in the financing market in summer 2023 for raising our A round. So we've been, I would say, quite discipline both in terms of our expenditure but also in terms of sequencing our fundraise in at particular points in time where we have enough runway at least sort of six months ahead of time. And fintech is a booming industry and the stat that you gave earlier that there are only 30 fintechs in Japan that's I think there is a lot that still can be done indeed. And this really shows the opportunity that's out there. These are all really good signs as an investor. 
What do you see as a potential exit scenario for Hobbytoon? I think the most likely scenario for us will be a trade sale. This asset will be of interest to, I would say, corporates, and particularly in the finance industry, either banks, insurance, or asset managers. For banks, those that are interested in deploying digital models that have great unit economics, insurance businesses that are interested in deploying a model that has an innovative multi-channel experience onto offline, and the investment community, in particular the asset managers, for those that are thinking about adding a direct-to-consumer channel to their traditional B2B distribution models. There might be other there might be other players that are not necessarily in the you know in the finance space, but they have large ecosystems of consumers and that want to add a financial services like its proposition or division to to their business. So this could be lifestyle businesses, for example. Yeah. I'm I'm really excited about this, Sam. To me, this feels like a a go big or go home deal. And as angels investors, it's it doesn't happen every day that we get the opportunity to invest. So thank you so much, Sam, for all this information, sharing about you and about Habito with us. Is there anything you would say as a last remark to everyone who's listening to this podcast? Yeah, I think this is a, a call for action for women. And so the spirit I came into this conversation is to... I guess, open up this opportunity to a broader set of women that perhaps are peripheral to the world of investment, but that like the story, they like the social mission, hopefully like the business that that, uh, that we're building. And I'm really keen to add Epic Angels to the cap table because I think it has a fundamental message that I'm really keen to drive home as soon as we go public with this financing round, which is that you know women do invest in women, women support each other. And this is, I think, a very important message around the world, but I think it's particularly important in a country like Japan where generally women uh, tend to be second-class citizens in the workplace and certainly at the intersection of finance entrepreneurship and technology you find very very few of of them and so i'm hoping that this will be a lightning rod in the japanese sort of media and so that other people may follow on the track and other people may find the uh, the inspiration and the encouragement uh, to to start do basically building businesses that are meaningful, that are impactful, and that have a social mission. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sam, for all this information. Thank you, and uh, see you soon. Yes. Stay tuned, and we will continue our podcast with Hester and one of the Epic Angels to hear more about why we're interested to invest in Habitat. Thank you, Micah. That was super interesting. Now let's hear from the investors what they have to say about this startup. And please remember, we are not a financial advisor. All opinions expressed by our Epic Angels are intended as educational and reflect the personal research and experiences of the team. For today's call, we invited Shinmei Tsai to join our conversation. Shinmei is currently the engineering director at Google. She has been at Google for over 18 years, leading teams across a variety of products, such as AdWords International, Forms of Payment, YouTube Mobile Web, YouTube Search, Google Maps for Mobile. And she founded the Geo 
UGC efforts in 2015 and grew to be the biggest local review site. And prior to Google, she also spent some time at Microsoft and at various startups. And currently she's based in Tokyo, so we could not imagine a better angel to join us for the investor talk. Shinmei, welcome. Thank you, Hester. Great, let's dive right in. So what excites you about the space and the company? There's many things about this company that excites me. First of all, it's FinTech in Japan, which you just heard, it's such a rare thing to happen in Japan. We only have less than 30 FinTechs in, in such a big country. And uh, it's not easy to come across a FinTech company like this and run by foreigners. In Japanese, there's a lot of resistance to have foreigners coming in and play in this field of fintech. So it's such a rare thing, to, in my opinion, and also have a female CEO. That's another thing that, that's super rare in Japan is to have female CEOs. In finance and tech, these are two fields where women representation is very, very limited. So combining these two things and you find this rare thing that's happening capital. So it excites me, really grabbed my attention from day one, hearing about that. Mm-hmm. You live in Tokyo in Japan. How long have you lived here? I lived in Japan for 15 years. Right. So you really know the country and the culture. So from your view, do you recognize what Sam said, that the human touch point is key for decision making that involves any type of risk? Yes. In Japan, the culture is very much the human touch. So there's uh, even in the travel industry, in every industry you see in Japan, they care a lot about the human touch. So they wanted to make people feel that there's this human touch to things. And sometimes even at a cost, that's they would do these things more than the cost. Yeah, it cost them. So it's it's sometimes surprising to me. Hey, you forgot about the cost. Are you, are you sure you want to do this human touch? Um, but yeah, it, it matters a lot to Japanese to have this human touch. So it's by this culture that people wanted to have this inherent human trust. Yeah. Um, so I, I do hear a lot of what she was saying that resonates with me. Um, but more than that, I think what resonates a lot is even in this whole situation that women have has the least power in investment. So traditionally, women is actually the person who controls the financing at home. That means the husband makes money, but they give some money to the wife, and the wife would actually control the finance at home. By finance, meaning how much they can spend on <laughs> on daily expenses. That said, women has it does nothing to do um, with investing. So with the money is more like allowance you have this much allowance to run allowance to run your household and so all you're thinking about is budgeting how much do i budget for food how much do i much budget for expenses and like kids education etc so it's all about budgeting it's not about making money work for you so the concept that as i hear about sam introducing these concepts to women especially younger women i think it's very valuable to change the culture right uh, in japan it's too much about the woman is seen as the one who can control the spending yes that's some power but they don't make the money they don't make the money work for them so in a way i, I really believe what she was saying financial freedom is key and in japan it's totally lacking for women right and and how easy or difficult 
do you think it will be for Japanese and especially Japanese women, but also for the men to adopt this solution? I like about the strategy she laid out, so which is starting from saving. Uh, so investment is seen as really difficult for women. I just explained they don't do it, right? And if your friends are not doing it, why would you? So it start, it's, it's a barrier. You don't understand this field. You think you're afraid of losing money if you start investing. But if you start from saving, attracting customers through saving, that's a really valid strategy. And also insurance. Japanese love insurance products. And so if you start from something that they're familiar with and start by bringing customers into your door and then later introduce to them through education, through trusted advisors, slowly you get them to understand what what financial investment means. And then you can start bringing on new customers. I mean, bring customers to this new channel of investment. I love that approach. This approach really matters a lot. What do you do first? What's your company's, how do you make money? I think Sam was so critical, like explaining her theory and really matches uh, my understanding of the market. Hey, and Mike, I think uh, when you asked her about the insights of the private beta that they've now run, the insights were great. Again, going back to this human touch point, and they even made this a revenue stream where they originally did not plan this, eh? so the revenue stream to subscribe to an advisor. I think that's really great. On the other hand, scalability is limited if you're so dependent on this human element, right, of advisors. How do you see this? I think indeed, as Chen Mei already said, it's it's so critical for this specific market that that will really be the glue. Because if I mean, yes, the entry point is, hey, a savings account with more yield than you would get anywhere else. That's good to get people in. But if you don't have anything behind that that will make people stay, you're going to lose them when someone else is going to have a better offering. And I think that um, this human advisor can really be the glue you know, with the fact that they are not only having one product offering, but really combining banking, insurance and investments that will create that stickiness all glued together by this human touch, by the human advisor, specifically since this is so in the Japanese ecosystem to immediately scrap it. I think you're, you're going to completely miss the point. Is it? pure efficiency if you look at it. No, not from the Western mindset uh, that um, at least I have. It is like, hey, that's weird. But from a Japanese perspective, as far as I understand from the market, it's it's a must have because if you don't do it, you wouldn't scale at all. That's how I look at it. I see. Right. Hey, and and Mike, you know Sam for a bit longer. Um, We all know that exactly as Shin Mei just said, being a foreigner, starting a business in Japan and being a woman, that's a double challenge. But why do you believe that Sam can pull this off and make it work? Yeah, I'm, I'm so impressed by this woman, how she really in only 12 months got to where she is right now. It's, it's really insane if you think about that. It's a fintech, you know, it's not just a clothing shop or whatever, not right? There's just really some complicated stuff that's happening here and building it, but also getting the team together all in a situation where because of COVID, Sam couldn't even enter the country. She wasn't even allowed into Japan because the borders were completely closed. And even 
there managed to get that license that was so important and to be the first foreigners to get that license, which again, meaning hiring the right people in the team. I think now it's a good mixture of the foreigners, but also the locals, because you need to have that mix, obviously, uh, shows me that, yep, she, she gets shit done, as I said in her intro already, and she will make that happen. She won't take no for an answer and will find a way through. That's amazing. Yeah, I have great respect for how she does this. Do you see the unfair advantage that this company has to make it work in the Japanese market? I think the unfair advantage they have is really the people asset they have on the, the first two markets. First people who got the license as a foreign uh, company. I think this, and they move really fast. Traditionally, Japanese companies don't move so fast. So what they have is time to market being the first there. And they have brought in great experience from seeing life. So I, I think it's, it's a great market fit. And what do you see as the main challenge? I think the main challenge, she already addressed a lot of my concerns. How do you really get people to trust you? I, I think that's the hard part. And uh, she's running a lot of those uh, tests to see, uh, are people willing to convert when they see a higher saving rate? And that slight higher saving rate to me, I, I would be skeptical. Can you get people to convert? But she already tested the market and said yes. So I, I think that's my biggest concern is are they able to roll out the strategy at scale? Will people actually move to Habital using this carrot? But as we see, indeed, the personal advisory is key to winning that trust, I understand. I think that's coming later. It's a stickiness. So you first acquire, then you retain, right? Uh, yeah. I think acquisition is through the attractive higher interest rate and retaining the right, is through the personal investor. So I think they have these two tools, which I really like, but can they attract effectively? So we're still there to see, but the and initial testing showed really good results. So I am very optimistic. Thank you. Great to hear. Micah, any yeah. final comments? Maybe also to what your question that you just asked Hester about, will this initial high interest attracts more customers. And I think if you look into the Japanese markets uh, where some other banks with 10 basis points already attracted 400,000 customers immediately with that. So I think that that's a proof point that it is very attractive for people to at least step in the model. And then of course, the key thing is once they stepped in, do you keep them? That is going to be the most important thing for them to tackle. Super exciting. Shinmei, Maike, thank you very much for these very rich insights about the Japanese culture and the Japanese market. I'm very excited to see what will happen. Thank you for your time and speak soon. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed looking behind the scenes. The objective of this podcast is to demystify angel investing and to share insights so you can learn more about the world of venture capital. Interested to see if you can become an angel investor yourself? Contact us via info at epicangelnetwork.com or go to our website, epicangelnetwork.com.